welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Meet the PAs podcast. Thank you all for listening in. Today, we have uh, Maitri Patel with us today. She is a clinically practicing PA at Radiation Oncology in Toronto at UHN, and as well as many other leadership roles, including the president-elect for the Association of Physician Assistants in Oncology. She's also the alternate director for the Ontario chapter of CAPA. She also assists with problem-based learning tutorials at McMaster as well as being a guest lecturer and senior mentor for the Consortium of PA Education at UFT. And she also has experience working as a clinical preceptor as well for both the McMaster and University of Toronto programs, um, as well as, as continuing to go back to school. So she has a lot on her plate and we're very happy to have you with us today. Thanks. Thanks, Maitri. Uh, thank you for having me here today. I look forward to having a great conversation with you after a hiatus due to the pandemic. And hopefully we'll have a conversation that our listeners uh, uh, gain something from. Wonderful. Well, to start us off, could you describe your background and what led you to the PA profession? Uh, absolutely. So I started off doing my Bachelor of Science at York University in Biology. Uh, fun fact, I actually never finished my undergrad. And I, after three years, I was accepted at the Mac PA program, uh, which I absolutely loved, uh, especially because of the problem-based learning style, which I think brought out a lot of challenges, but also a unique way for me to rewire my brain so I could learn to apply the problems to clinical settings and and use it firsthand when clerkship started. So I absolutely enjoyed that. Um, I always had an interest in healthcare, particularly oncology. But I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I looked into nursing, looked into medicine. Um, I didn't ever end up applying to medical school because I came across the PA program before then. Um, and then I, I always had an interest in healthcare and oncology. So I pursued uh, the, oh, the possibility of different professions. I looked into nursing, OTPT, medicine, um, and I really wanted to stick to medicine. So it came down to being a physician or being a PA for me. Uh, being a physician, as much as, as I respect my physician colleagues, was a huge dedication and a huge undertaking. Um, and value, I really value my work-life balance. I, I want to be able to enjoy my personal life. And I really didn't want to be in school for 14 plus years. So it was a, being a PA was a huge hit for me. Um, and then I, you know, I started the PA program. I graduated in August 2014. I started working at Princess Margaret as part of the Career Start program in radiation oncology. And as they say, the rest is history. How did you hear about the PA profession? Because you were fairly early on in the cycles as well. Yeah, so there is a, there's actually a PA at Princess Margaret, Joelle. I'll give her a huge shout out. I always tell her every time I see her, or I try to at least remember to tell her every time I see her, is that you know, she changed the course of my life. Um, if I hadn't met her, I wouldn't have known about the PA program. Her dad was actually my Saturday school teacher. Happened to bump into him. He asked about my interest. You know, what, what was I pursuing after university? told him I was interested in healthcare, wasn't sold on the idea of being a physician. He said, oh, well, you know, my daughter is actually from the first graduating class from U of T of this brand new profession called physician assistants. Do you want to chat with her, learn about it? Um, and she was fantastic. She gave me the rundown. She told me about her experience. I believe she was working in a clinical, like in a clinic at that time as PA. And uh, um, she, she was great in terms of helping me decide that this is what I wanted to do. I did my application when I graduated, uh, found out she had switched her jobs and she was working at Princess Margaret and we've been working at PMH, not, not together, but in the same clinical space for the last seven plus years. So interesting how just that one interaction really changed the entire course of your future. That's amazing. It really is because if I hadn't, bumped into her dad because he taught me when I was in high school. Um, so I had not kept in touch with him and it just, it was a chance meeting. He happened to ask about my future. I happened to share that I was interested in healthcare. He just happened to have a daughter who was from the first graduating class from U of T. 
And, and so it really feels like a lot of stars had to align correctly for me to end up learning about this profession. Because other than her, I had really not met any PAs. I hadn't read about it. Even after I met her, I want to say my research was very limited in terms of what a PA was. You know, back then, the um, the same kinds of resources didn't exist. Social media was not as rampant. We didn't have these helpful PA podcasts. We didn't have um, the same wide range of uh, resources to tap into. So to me, the PA profession was a couple of websites I found and her. And that was enough to sell me on the idea. Yeah, it's weird how things happen like that. Becky and I met by fluke and it's totally changed both our lives. So <laughs> love that. I never, I can't think of you guys as being separate entities now. We're joined. Yes. We're joined at the hip. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> and then you had to go and move across the country, but whatever. I, I, I'm, I, it's true. It's true. I am now living and working in Manitoba, but, but we still connect, right? Um, okay. So one of the things major that I've always really respected, uh, you for, and also been very impressed by was your, uh, knowledge on business savviness early on as Rachel and you already mentioned, you were one of the earlier graduates and practicing PAs in uh, Ontario. And you knew going in that job security needed to be worked on a bit. And you were able to find a way to monitor the finances associated with your position and demonstrate that value, which ended up helping to secure future position for yourself. Could you explain to us how you did that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, early on, I was taught by my dad that numbers speak more than anything else. He um, he's a, he's an engineer, so I, I, I don't have to explain further why to him numbers speak, but um, he's always been a quantitative methodical individual, and that part always remained with me. And thankfully, I, I ended up working for a bunch of physicians who are researchers. They also value the, uh, the, the data that goes into research and the fact that if you want to sell an idea, you have to back it up with something. Um, so we decided to start monitoring measurable parameters. And this would really be my advice for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're new into your position or if you're 10 years in, if you want to demonstrate some kind of financial worth or even qualitative worth, because I don't think qualitative data is any less important than quantitative, um, but start looking at possible measurable parameters. For me, the parameters were, was I helping clinic wait times? Was I helping reduce wait times for new consultations? Uh, was I helping reduce overtime for nursing and allied staff? Was I helping improve physician quality of life? Uh, was I seeing enough patients so that my salary was justified because I was allowing the physicians to do other academic research or even clinical activities? So these were the, the, the results that we focused on. And when we first started collecting data, we really didn't know what we wanted to prove, so to say, um, because I was one of the first, uh, I think I was the first completely radiation oncology PA. Um, we couldn't find anybody else to learn from, so to say. There were lots of American PAs, but as we know that they have a completely different system, so we couldn't just translate their information into an OHIP-based Canadian system. So we started to just gather a wide range of data, and at the end of a couple of years, we put it together. I presented this at Kappa, and we were able to show that I was not only seeing number of patients, uh, enough number of patients to pay my own salary, but I was helping make department money. And in addition, I was helping reduce wait times in clinics. So clinics that were consistently ending at 6 or 7 p.m. were now ending at 5, which means the hospital didn't have to pay overtime for nurses. So it really came down to, you know, it's a win-win-win for patients, for healthcare workers, um, for the hospital administration. So there was no question as to why we shouldn't continue with this position. And I think this kind of quantitative data helped us secure another PA's position in our department because I think if my supervisor and I had just gone back to the department and had said, oh yeah, we want to hire another PA because we like the concept of one, it wouldn't have gone very, very well. Um, I think we had to show our case. And once you show a case like this, I think nobody can question you. Um, the number of patients we see has grown year by year. So it was a no brainer that 
in order to keep up with the rising demands, it, we had not hired any extra positions. We had to grow our healthcare provider capacity. We had to hire somebody who was able to see a wide range of patients and the obvious answer was a PA. Um, so to end things off, I think if you can measure any kind of measurable parameter, which might be completely different in your work setting than mine, look into that and collect at least a year's worth of data. It helps if the department, clinic, or hospital has kept the data from before you came, because then you can do um, a comparative analysis. But even if they haven't kept that data, they have information about overtime. They have information about burnout rates, um, just even quality of life, right? That doesn't have to be quantitative. Um, Ian um, did a great study about MD quality of life, and I'm sure he'd be happy to share that with any of the listeners if, if somebody was interested. And just looking at how the quality of life has improved for these physicians is a huge seller as well. You know, about a year or two into my work, I met my supervisor's uh, wife and uh, she said to me, um, I told Richard that he can never fire you because if he fires you, he can't come home. Um, and it really came down to the fact that he was finally going home on time since I was there in the clinic. So it's not just uh, it's not just the physicians who are benefiting, their family members are happier. Um, and somebody else told me this, you know, talk to the spouses and partners of your supervising physicians. If they're happy, the supervising physicians will keep you around. <laughs> That's incredibly true. And um, the paper you referenced on Ian, that Ian Jones did is actually available on JCAMPA and we can post it along with um, this episode of the podcast for anyone who wants to read it. So, so your recommendation is to just pick a parameter that you're comfortable measuring in the practice setting that you're in and just to start, just get over the fear and start. Yeah. And even if it's multiple parameters and if you're not, cause I didn't know what exactly I was trying to show at the beginning. When I was hired on, we did a two-year contract instead of the usual one-year contract, because we knew that I would need at least six months to start learning my job. It was such a new role um, and that we would have to give ourselves at least an extra year to show our value. But if you have any information that you think you have made a difference, either you've introduced, maybe you've introduced new education materials, maybe the patient satisfaction rates have gone up, you know, qualitatively, you think that's what's happened. You want to be able to show it using data or um, maybe do surveys. Maybe the nurses are giving you feedback that uh, the, there's less gaps in patient care now that there is a PA because uh, you're able to do post-op care. You're able to help with discharge summaries. So if you are getting feedback, listen to that very, very carefully and see what improvements have come into play since your presence. Start looking into it. Start collecting that information. Even if you've got a mashup, that's okay because as the numbers start to add up, as the information starts to add up, it, to me, it almost seems like it start, the puzzles start to go into places. For me, it started to be obvious that I was seeing 500 new patients a day. Uh, physicians in the department were seeing anywhere from two to 400 new patients a day. It was a no-brainer that I was helping the department significantly. So, so do that. And the other thing you could always do is um, ask your your clinic, your hospital department, if they've actually kept any of this data, because they might come back and say, you know what, our overtime rates are ridiculous. You know, we consistently have to keep uh, our secretaries, nurses, allied staff over time because we're never able to keep up with the clinic uh, expectations or the, or the workload. To see if they've got data about that, and then you can show a compar compar comparison. So either work on something that already exists and you know that there's been a difference, or see, uh, look, around, look around you and see if there's anything you can pick up on and start collecting that information. It's such fantastic advice. And um, did, do you, did you work, so you did not work from a template. It was really you and the docs that put this together on your own, correct? That's correct. And is, is, to your knowledge, is there a template out there available? Just as an example, even though everyone's individual practice and measures, uh, measuring parameters might differ, it's sometimes helpful to just have, be able to see what somebody else has done. So you, you have something you can kind of start from. 
Yeah. And if you look around and if you know about PAs who've done similar studies, say you work in oncology in Manitoba, uh, it doesn't even have to be radiation oncology, but you work in outpatient clinical setting and you think, hmm, what I do is very similar to what Maitri does. Can I just ask her for her Excel sheet, see what kind of data she's kept? At least just the column labels and how she's collecting, how frequently she's collecting information. And then I can adapt it to my practice. Uh, reach out to people. I want to say that our PA community is very friendly. Uh, people are open to uh, open to collaboration. People are open uh, to sharing their information or at least getting you started with a lead. Um, so reach out to people who've done this kind of uh, done this kind of research activity, or even if you know that they're keeping this sort of information, whether or not they've published it, and then you can work off of that. I don't think that there is a particular uh, template, like one template that exists out there, but I think if you reach out to people where you think your practices are similar, that might be a good step one. That's a great advice. Okay, that makes sense. So we learned about how you kept your position going and did all the research, but what's, what is your day-to-day clinic life like? So I have nine clinics a day. I'm sorry, nine clinics a week. I would be a superhuman if I could do nine clinics a day. Um, I have nine clinics a week. I have one half day. Sometimes I have two half days, depending on uh, what my clinic schedule is like that particular month um, to do my administrative work uh, or something like this, where I can do some PA advocacy work or prep for the upcoming clinics. Uh, My clinics really range from any of the disease sites. So over time, I have worked in CNS, brain metastasis, eye, head and neck, endocrine, uh, breast, lung, GI, GU, gyne, sarcoma, palliative uh, radiation. So essentially any kind of radiation oncology clinic is fair game for me. And I morning clinic starts at nine, usually wraps up around 12.31. Afternoon clinics start at 1.30, usually wrap up by five. Some go a little bit over um, and I try to keep up with my dictations during clinic, because as you can imagine, if I tried to keep all my dictations from nine clinic for Friday afternoon, I would not do a good job at documenting my patient interactions. Um, so I try to keep up with my documentation as I go along. If my clinics are canceled because the staff is away or we have other commitments, um, I'll just use that time to focus on some of the research activities I'll, I'll Uh, catch up on some other administrative work, or uh, sometimes I'll have meetings or other commitments that I have to tend to. Wow. So you see every, basically every type of cancer. Yeah. And so that was the beauty of introducing PAs in our department, because the physicians are very specialized. They are world-renowned for the kind of work they do, but you can imagine for somebody to become so hyper-specialized, they can't be treating, you know, 10 different site groups. So majority of the physicians in the department focus on two to three disease sites, but Sam and I, so Sam is my counterpart, she's the other Radong PA, we are trained as generalists. So we we are trained uh, with the intention that we are flexible with our schedule. Every six months, um, our lead supervising physician sends a call out to all the physicians in the department, which is about 40 doctors right now, uh, just to say, you know, who needs most help. And because we're in an academic teaching hospital, the schedule changes depending on whether or not there are fellows, residents, uh, visiting learners, or whether or not somebody's on sabbatical, research leave, uh, maternity, paternity leave, and Sam and I will help cover those absences. That's amazing. And that this last, you know, year and a half to two years must have added another level of change and uncertainty to your day-to-day practice um, and not just to yourself, but for the group as well as patients. How have you guys adapted and changed your practice during the COVID-19 pandemic? So the biggest change came on in March, 2020, when overnight we went to complete virtual care and you know, it's, it's a shock, right, for patients and us, because now we're seeing people by video, we're doing Ontario Telenetwork, OTN uh, platform, we're uh, calling them for routine follow up. So it, it was a huge change. I think for about a month and a half, I worked from home entirely, and never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that a healthcare worker could work from home. Um, it was also a huge 
area of concern because our patients were worried if there were any recurrences, if we would miss them. If I just see them on video or talk to them, there is a possibility I miss a recurrence. So it took a lot of discussion around patient safety versus bringing them in. And then I think slowly as we started to learn more about the pandemic, more about the nuances, uh, we started to bring people into the hospital who we thought needed to be seen in person. For example, our gynae oncology patients, they need a pelvic exam every single time they come for a follow-up. There is just no way to to accommodate for that um, otherwise. And it, you know, some people will, will say, well, why can't you just have them do an MRI or a CT scan in, in place of them, that, them having to come to the hospital? And my counter argument is we're healthcare workers. We don't get too shy from our, um, our responsibilities. If I send them for an MRI, I am still putting them at the same exposure risk by sending them out of their home why would I just not do that to bring them in a safe facility where I know that I have my PPE, I know that I'm going to be washing my hands, taking all the precautions, and provide the same level of care. So I think it was a learning process for us, for the patients. Um, and right when I think we were starting to figure this hybrid model out, I was redeployed to the inpatient ward. And I was there by myself for about six months. So that to me was a huge learning curve. And uh, I, I think as as daunting of an experience that was because I was by myself, um, you know, patients are passing away in front of your eyes. Uh, you're doing more death certificates than discharges. It, it gets to you at a certain point, but it also teaches you a lot of value in the work we do. It taught me to be grateful for my life. Uh, you know, it sounds very philosophical, but I was just thankful to be alive um, because you have patients with cancer and then you you top COVID on, you just put COVID on top of that. And it's, it's, it's worse. It's worse situation than somebody with just one or the either diagnosis. So it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about resilience about myself. I, I realized that I could do a lot more than I gave myself credit for. And I think that was a huge learning experience for me. Um, I eventually came back uh, to the outpatient uh, world and now we're settled in what I call a hybrid model. So we give patients the option um, if they are not comfortable coming down, if they if our virtual assessment is adequate, if I don't think that they need to come down, then we'll document that. But if they're anxious, they want to come down, they're always welcome to do so. Or if my virtual assessment ends with me thinking mm, something's not right, I want to see them in person, then I'll do that. Lots of changes. Yeah, that's overwhelming. <laughs> my job really didn't change that much. What type of inpatients were you seeing? Were you doing inpatient oncology or were you on like a, a whole separate thing? So we have uh, an inpatient oncology ward where we have radonc and medonc patients. The individual looking after the radonc patients were, was over the age limit that would be allowed to enter the hospital. So we unfortunately had to step down and uh, we needed somebody who was a general practitioner uh, Sam Parmalee, my, my counterpart, had just started working two or three months before, so it was not fair to put her in that situation. So I went up there because you needed somebody who could be uh, in an internal medicine role with an oncology knowledge background. So, you know, you could have somebody with breast cancer, but they're having small bowel obstruction uh, and iron deficiency, and they're having all sorts of um, electrolyte imbalances, and you got to be able to work all of that up. So. It, it, I was, I think I was one of the closest to my internal medicine rotation uh, experience. It still felt very daunting because I didn't think I could practice in an internal medicine setting. Um, but it was all patients had cancer diagnosis, but it was um, it was a mixed ward. And then anybody who had COVID uh, would end up on us on a separate section, but we would still look after them because they have an active cancer diagnosis. Wow, that sounds like a lot to take on, especially like six years into practicing in a certain specialty and then switching. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of being a PA is that you can switch at any time, but usually it's your choice. <laughs> <laughs> and how have, how have your patients been able to mitigate these changes? Have they, have you found that over time through the pandemic that their anxiety about COVID has been able to kind of stabilize out compared to the beginning? Or do you find that their anxiety is still quite high about it, given their very immunocompromised state? 
I think we see a mix. We have some people who have remained very anxious uh, despite vaccination and us assuring them that we're being very vigilant with who we allow in the hospital. They're still refusing to come in person. And then we have those who are extremely anxious because they haven't been able to see any of their oncologist or their GP in the last little while and they want to be seen in person. Uh, we have those who are apprehensive about the vaccination, uh, but they just want to have an understanding. I think majority of my patients are waiting to have a conversation with us as opposed to being anti-vaccination. So I think that reassures me because I'm always open to conversation. I mean, that's how we come up with great ideas, right? So if a patient tells me they don't want to get vaccinated, I my first impulse is not to say, oh boy, like, is it going to be one of those? Um, I usually try to approach that with, well, you know, can I help you make the decision? Can I answer any questions? And I'm always surprised when they say, like, thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me about vaccines, although that has nothing to do with cancer, because I think more often than not, they have this opinion or they try to tell somebody about it and the other individual just shuts them down, just says, you need to go get your vaccine. We're not going to talk about it. So I, I feel grateful that I have the ability to in relationship with them to say, you know, can I talk about it? Let's just talk about it. Maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe you won't. But at least I'll know that, you know, we did our best to have a conversation. And, you know, about 50, 60 percent of them will change their mind. Uh, some will continue to be apprehensive and and it is what it is. Um, hopefully as data comes through, uh, we've got the FDA approval for Pfizer. Maybe more patients will start to uh, be more accepting. But I think we do see a mix, so a little bit of everything. Fair enough. And uh, you make very good points. That conversation has to be welcoming on, on both ends in order to say it was successful. And otherwise that conversation is immediately shut down. Yeah. Exactly. And then and then you've ruined your therapeutic relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And even, and, and for me, you know, it's important to say, even if you choose not to get the vaccine, I will still care for you. I think patients need to hear that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, of course, I want them to get vaccinated. I want everybody to get vaccinated, but that doesn't mean I'm going to judge them or treat them any different because patients have trauma. Um, maybe they've had an experience that makes them lose their trust in healthcare. Uh, people have gone through histories of trauma that you know we only see the tip of the iceberg. And I can't judge them for their decision. I still have to provide them impartial care for their cancer. And I think they need to hear that from us. Yeah. I think that was a good reminder for us to not only tell patients that, but remind ourselves of that we all took the oath to do that. Uh, regardless of of what we think a patient should do. Uh, We all took the oath to care for them regardless. Yeah, I mean, it's no different than any other, you know, sometimes lifestyle choices contribute to disease. Absolutely. We don't treat those patients any differently. And I don't think we should be, you know, giving less efficient or good care to people if they if they choose not to vaccinate but it is our job to you know address those hesitancy issues as well so yeah it's been interesting working in a covid world i've never had so much vaccine talk in my life usually it's like do you want your tetanus you cut yourself is it up to date uh yeah i think so let me check okay all right nope it's not okay yeah here's your tetanus shot because i work in large so like pretty much the only vaccine we ever discussed that and rabies but (laughs) yeah never did I expect to be spending so much of my day discussing a vaccine yeah I mean I think that goes for most of the specialties right Rachel like yeah I mean most outside of family practice and pediatrics yeah you don't generally uh, discuss vaccines I mean in oncology you do especially after like transplants and stuff but yeah yeah, but they're usually like um they're usually just a kind of a small portion of that conversation. At least in my personal experience, the vaccine conversation with oncology patients has been not the main focus. Like certainly brought up, like you're you're immunocompromised. We need to make sure we get you all the vaccines that we can, except for live attenuated vaccines. Um, you know, and then we move on. Like it's it hasn't been a major portion of the discussion. I feel like it's changed, but I know Mitri, maybe you feel differently. Yeah, absolutely. I think that sometimes our patients will come in for their routine follow-up, just wanting to 
focus the entire dis- discussion on vaccine. And it's happened more than once where I'll, I'm, I'm about to leave the room and I go, wait, we didn't talk about your cancer care. Like, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> because we'll take up, you know, 20 minutes just to talk about the vaccine, the mandate, um, the efficacy and the data around it. And I really want to be able to have an open conversation. So I don't want to shut them down. But I also need to know how you're doing six years post-op. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Do you feel, Maitri, that this blended model that you are now using at your um, clinic is going to continue? Do you feel like this is going to be a long-term change that your your practice is incorporating? I think virtual care is here to stay. Um, we had actually started to incorporate virtual care before the pandemic. Uh, so I was familiar with the OTN platform, which helped me quite a bit when the pandemic hit in the sense that I was not only able to continue, but I was able to help train others who were not familiar. Because you can imagine overnight, OTN had thousands of requests from healthcare workers to get a new login. Um, but I do think that it's here to stay because there are certain patients who absolutely don't need to be seen. Uh, For example, take a well prostate cancer patient follow-up, say, 8, 10 years later. PSA is is a remarkable measure of prostate cancer development. Not for everybody, but for majority of patients. And if they live in Sudbury and their oncologist is in Toronto, they don't need to come down here for me to tell them that their PSA is undetectable. They can do it at a lab closer to home. I can review the results with them ensure that if they're having any long-term side effects from the radiation or surgery or both, I send them the right medications or the right treatment or whatever follow-up is needed, and then schedule a follow-up as necessary. So I think there are certain patients who certainly benefit from virtual care. We have to be careful because I'm hearing about you know, some practitioners going to complete virtual care and not seeing any of their patients. And I think that's a dangerous path to go down. Uh, Would it be easier for me to sit in my pajamas all day and not commute for three hours daily to be in the comfort of my home and call patients? Of course. Is it the right thing to do? No. Um, Just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's right. Uh, For patient care, for safety, I think that we need to be vigilant about the kind of care we provide. Um, patients might be hypochondriac. Maybe they're worried when we don't think they need to be worried. But if a patient says, I want to come see you in person, I think that they have the right to be, they have the right to be seen. Um, so this model, I think, has been talked about even before, um, before the pandemic, because we know that virtual care saves a lot of money. We know that it helps not just the healthcare workers with time, but also helps the patients. Like I used the Sudbury example. If a patient had to spend their own money out of their pocket to come down to Toronto to see their oncologist, take time off of work, you can imagine the financial loss accompanied with that. When they come to the hospital, they probably have to wait hours before they're seen. That's a lot of waste of time, of clinical space, um, physical space that can be used by somebody else. So Certainly, there are financial implications and benefits, but I think that we always have to be on edge and take it with a grain of salt about not going down the slippery road of saying everybody here can be seen virtually. I think that's really good advice. There's there's room and space and likely need for using both types of visits absolutely. Uh, in most locations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I work in Midwestern Ontario, which really isn't that far from Toronto or London, which is our usual referral center, like two and a half, three hours. But for some people, that's really, really tough. And it's really tough for their families. Like if they're, if they have to be down, like admitted to hospital for the families to commute three hours to visit a loved one is, is really tough. And some people just refuse. They just, even if they need, like, I've had patients refuse to go to London from where I work simply because it's too far for them, even though they should be having surgery. And so we've had to, they don't get the best care, but they get care closer to home. So I think more and more virtual stuff, especially for distance wise, and it's something that doesn't need to actually be seen in person is helpful for people who can't otherwise access specialized care, right? Like, exactly. yeah, there's yeah. And I think yeah. that if somebody is hesitant to receive care, we certainly all have seen patients like that. Um, if the specialist is open to doing a virtual consult, it might just help change their mind because yep. it's not enough for me as a radon P to say, you need to see a surgeon. Maybe they need to talk to a surgeon. But if I'm 
force them to drive three hours one way to see the surgeon, they're going to be turned off by that idea. On the contrary, if I say, you know what, they'll talk to you or maybe they'll do it by video and then you can come up with a plan of action together. They might actually just be open to having a conversation. Yeah, like you, there's a lot of cases where like you can have the surgical consult virtually before, like you don't, do you really need to go into the hospital twice to see the surgeon? Probably not. I mean, ortho maybe, but if you need a hernia repair, do you really need to see the phys- the surgeon before? like two weeks before the hernia repair? Probably not. Yeah. So I think there's, there is certainly benefit to virtual care. And if used correctly, I think it can do a lot of benefit. Um, like, I think like both of you said, we just have to remind ourselves to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. So Maitri, I'd like to move on to a slightly different topic and discuss um, the basically talking about things that relate to your role as the alternate director of Ontario chapter of mm-hmm. Kappa. Specifically, the big exciting news that Ontario is moving towards regulation, which is fantastic. So thank you for your hard work towards that. I know that that has been a very time consuming project. What can you tell us about where things are at thus far? Yes, I mean, I don't have to reiterate that the that the debate of whether or not pay should be regulated and the manner this should be done in has been pending for way too long. Um, I certainly want to give a shout out to all my ancestors that makes them sound old, but that, you know, we're a very, we're a very young group. So, but really everybody who's done work, um, including every single PA who has advocated at a local um, or an institutional or a national level, Every advocacy event that you've attended, every meeting you've had with your supervisor, with your local MPP, all of that has accumulated to this. So I really don't think there is one individual or just Kappa who needs to be congratulated. I think we all ought to give ourselves a little pat on the back for this day to have happened. You know, just to summarize, in June, the Ontario government gave the Royal Assent for the regulation of PAs by CPSO. To answer your question, I think it will be some time before all the regulatory processes are in place. And I think our current estimate of time for all the work to be done and finished, um, and based on the timelines that we have with CPSO, will be about two years before everything is ready to go. A lot of things take time and, you know, meetings take time to set up depending on everybody's availability. It's, It's difficult to say right now exactly what will happen when this is final uh, and done. You know, will our existing medical directives be replaced in its entirety? Will we just have um, a class of uh, regulation under CPSO? All of these are nuances that need to be worked with. But the 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 fact that CPSO is on board, the government is on board, OMA is on board is extremely exciting. Uh, the fact that we're all committed to the safety and quality of care for Ontario patients uh, that's exciting. And we also know, you know, just to just to address the other question a lot of people have, uh, nothing good comes for free. So as soon as we're regulated, I'm sure our membership for regulation with CPSO will come with a price tag. I don't know what that price tag is, unfortunately. Um, But I think that this is going to be one expense we're all going to be excited to have. Uh, It means official recognition to me. It means an equal standing ground with all of our regulated healthcare bodies. Um, You know, when I walk into a room or when I'm looking at an application that says only regulated healthcare workers can do this, it breaks my heart a little every time. Um, So just to be able to change that, that's huge to me. Do you expect that practice autonomy will change, either increase or decrease with, with regulation? It's hard to say that because we're, you know, the whole reason CPSO, I don't want to say the whole reason, but a big part of why CPSO is on board is because PAs will be supervised by supervising physicians who are regulated by CPSO. Um, I think that's why CPSO is comfortable with regulating us because they know that the people uh, we report to directly or indirectly are regulated by them. Um, So I think there's always going to be a component of supervision. I think the nuances of the level of supervision will be individual. For example, I don't think that my work will change even a bit if I if I become uh, regulated. Uh, I am able to write prescriptions right now other than controlled substances. I'll be able to do that. Um, I am able to put in all the orders for imaging, blood work, you name it. Like I can put in, you know, technician scan orders if I wanted to because my supervising physician does it. So I don't think that 
a lot of us will experience changes in our day-to-day practice. However, I think on the administrative front, uh, on the documentation front, there will be changes. Um, do physicians need to sign off on everything we do? Good question. Do they need to be, um, you know, cop- so when I write my CP, when I write prescriptions right now i always write the physician's name and their cpso license number will i need to continue doing that probably not hopefully not um but i think that these are all questions that unfortunately i don't know the answer to and we'll have the answers to with our ongoing meetings with cpso yeah that helps go go ahead Rich. no i was just gonna say yeah it seems like it's gonna be a long process but it was a probably even longer process to get to this point so we'll move forward we'll take it yep <laughs> exactly we, we do want it we do want it what is there um going to be opportunity i i assume that there will be for the the practicing pas in ontario to have a voice or be able to put in their opinion to how these documents look what they say you know the the, the verbiage that is used do you expect that that practicing PAs will have a, a, a the chance or the ability to have an opinion and input on that, or you're uncertain? I always encourage um, all PAs to write to the Ontario chapter director myself. So while, you know, Sahan and I, our terms are coming up not to, um, you know, they're coming up shortly because at the next cup by event, both of our two-year two, two term will come to an end. Um, Anthony from Ottawa will be our new Ontario director. I don't think the results of the alternate director are out yet. Um, There were two candidates, so one of them will be our new alternate director. I encourage people to reach out to the Kappa team because um, we're your voice at the Kappa table, right? So we, you know, if you have thought of something as a practicing PA that the Kappa team has not thought of, reach out to them. Uh, Kappa also every now and then will send out blasts about you know task force. So for example, we have a ta- we have a funding task force, funding model task force within Kappa, because PAs are probably one of the only professions where we need to think about our funding. Where does our money come from? Uh, so Kappa thought it was important to create a task force which addresses this question, this big elephant in the room. Um, and so if you're interested in volunteering with Kappa, if you have a passion about know, funding, maybe you have a passion about regulation, maybe you're passionate about medical directives, uh, about writing policies, reach out to Kappa. There are so many opportunities for volunteer uh, roles and see if you can be part of something where your voice can be heard on a more official platform. If you want to just be able to give your opinion and say, hey, listen, I have this idea, don't have time to commit for a full volunteer position, but here's an idea that you can run with um, or at least keep in mind as you're forming the policies do email it to Kappa team, email it to the executive director, the Kappa, the general Kappa email, or to your Ontario reps. That is very good advice. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And, and if I can also um, put out there that um, I don't think that it should just be Ontario PAs that write and put their voice forward. Other PAs throughout Canada, I think, should also put their thoughts forward, particularly those who have been working under regulation for some time, as their experience may not be 100% applicable to Ontario. But um, for example, those working in Manitoba do have experience working under regulation for quite some time now. And there have been, you know, positives and negatives and things that they'd still like to see change that, you know, if we can hear their input, that that can contribute to the conversation too, so that we're taking into account all pieces. Yeah. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yes. Maybe we can avoid some of the the things that aren't so great about regulation in other provinces. We can avoid them here in Ontario. Yeah. And given that Ontario has the largest number of practicing PAs in Canada, I do suspect that the platform of regulation and how that looks in Ontario is going to be very impactful for future provinces and how they implement And so we, we, and of course we want to do it all in the correct manner in the way that's beneficial to not just the PAs practicing, but also to the supervising physicians. And of course, all with patient care and safety as a top priority. Absolutely. Changing gears slightly again, I'm actually really interested in your position as the president-elect for the Association of Physician Assistants in Oncology. When did, um, I didn't realize this was a thing, but it's probably my <laughs> ignorance. Um, so tell me more about that. What's, 
what that's been uh, like. I actually just assumed my role in June, so it hasn't been too long. Um, so the Association of Pays in Oncology, I became a volunteer. And this is a great example of how if you're really passionate about something, you can get involved by volunteering. I attended the first conference back in 2015. Um, it was a primarily medical and surgical oncology conference. So my feedback to them was, I didn't like it because there was no role for radiation oncology. Um, I should keep my big mouth closed because they came back to me and said, well, do you want to fix it then? Um, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, as they say, the rest is history. But, but really, they've been a welcoming group. They're all American PAs, but they have never made me feel like I was in one of them. Um, it's great to be able to talk to people who've been in this game longer. When I go to these conferences, these PAs have been practicing for 25, 30 plus years. They're directors in their, uh, in their institutions. They are full tenured professors. They are, um, you know, they are leading new projects. They're working in pharmaceutical industries. And so I really joined the, the team with the intention of learning from them. And over time, I participated in many of their volunteer committees. I was on the conference planning committee for the past five or six years. Um, I do their radiation oncology uh, sessions. And uh, then last year, the opportunity arose and it really it really felt like the right fit. I, I'll be using my term as a president-elect to really learn um, what it means to be a president of a national association, that it's a lot of undertaking. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, so it really makes me feel like I'm doing something for the peace and oncology community. I'm not, you know, I'm not in it for an ulterior motive. And, and then I'll have my presidency from June 2022 to 2023, and then I'll be the uh, past president for a year on the board. So between running a full-time clinic, being the associate director for the Kappa Ontario chapter, the president-elect for the Association of PAs in Oncology, and going back to school for your, is it your MBA? Yeah. How, when do you sleep? <laughs> I managed to get a very healthy seven and a half hours every night. <laughs> I am Jealous. Yeah, it's that's that's like magic. Also speaks to your level of organization and intelligence. Uh, it probably helps that I don't have children. So anybody who's listening has children. I do not compare myself to you because having children is like having ten full time jobs. So you're already doing a lot better job than I am. But that being said, organization does help quite a bit. It helps that I don't do calls. It helps that um, I have a set schedule, so I'm able to plan myself. Um, I, you know, I do things that I'm passionate about. If I don't feel passionate about something, I step back from it because I've always found that the minute I stop waking up feeling excited about something, that's when I need to reevaluate my choices. Um, if I no longer feel the joy in doing the things that brought me joy, then I need to, um, take a step back, see what's going on. And that was my big motivation for actually pursuing the MBA. I was at a point in my career where I wanted to do more. I looked into teaching. I've been doing a bit of teaching at Mac and at U of T. And as much as I enjoyed, I didn't think that I could do that full time. That was not my calling. I looked into research, wasn't excited by it, loved doing bits and pieces of it, couldn't do it day in and day out. Um, and then that's when I started to look into more leadership roles. I did the Emerging Health Leadership course at McMaster, which is fantastic if any of you are thinking of health leadership. Um, it's a good two-week insight into what it means for you to be a leader. What are your strengths, your weaknesses, and how can you leverage them to be the best possible version of a leader that you are? Um, and then I started to look into the business aspect of things. You know, I think we started our conversation with, 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 the, with the point that um, I had that business mind even when I started uh, this position. I had that finance aspect always in the back of my mind. And I've always thought of ways to try to improve the system. Now, all of us can point to the gaps and, you know, we have all these great ideas about being able to uh, improve the way things flow, how clinics flow, how the workflow is going overall. Um, but we we sometimes miss, uh, we don't have the business um, uh, 
uh, we don't have the business experience or the education to put it into action. And, and that's okay because not everybody is going to be a business person and a clinician. It's, it's not fair to expect that of us, but that, that idea got me really excited. Like I wanted to do it. I would wake up and want to work on my application for the MBA program. Um, I went through, I think like four interviews. I went through, um, I want to say there was a three hour exam and I actually looked forward to that exam, which, which is when I knew I wanted to do it. Um, so the bottom line is if you're really excited about what you do, I think that you can end up doing five different jobs. There are physicians I work with who do a lot more than me and I have no idea how they do it with having children. Um, but if you wake up in the morning and you're passionate about what you do, somehow the time will find itself. That's amazing. You should also like maybe be like a life coach, <laughs> right? Motivational speaker. Like I can think of a lot of titles that would be great for you. Well, we'll talk about this on the side, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Maitri, we want to thank you so much for being with us today and uh, blessing us with your very amazing insights and your leadership. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we end the session? No, I think that this was great, ladies. You know, it's it's always fun to talk about what PAs are doing. Um, I hope that this opens up conversations amongst people about where they're headed, because I think a lot of us um, reach a point where we want to do more. Um, you know, what you have, what you two have done, you have this amazing podcast, um, which allows Canadian PAs and future PAs to tap into and listen to some of our experiences. I look at what Anne Dang has done with the Canadian PA website. Um, you two have created the um, PA certification exam material. Um, I see Sahan with his leadership roles. I, I see educators. And there's so much out there for all of us to do. So I love learning about everyone's journey. I hope that I can make a little tiny contribution to this. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll we'll all be circling back and, and you know, 20 years later talking about what a fantastic profession we get to be a part of. Well, I think you have already made a significant impact on the PAs here in Canada. And I am very excited to see what you do going forward. You're too kind. <laughs> same okay thanks again for tuning into this episode of meet the pa's podcast with matrix patel bye everyone meet the pa's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca where you can find all your canadian exam prep needs if you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.